Welcome to Between the Shelves, the premier Savo Library podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, In today's episode, we're going to be doing part two of our So You Want to Be a Librarian mini-series. So the last episode, we had Angela and Jillian on, and this week's episode, we have Aaron is returning. Welcome, Aaron. Hi. And a first-timer, Gianna. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I'd like to have new faces on the podcast whenever possible. So, yeah, we're going to be having a very loose conversation about what it's like to be a librarian, why you wanted to be a librarian, and then we can talk about what library school is like, too, if for those who are interested. So let's just start it off with a nice softball question. Uh, why did you decide to be a librarian? It's <laughs> a good question. Well, I am not currently a librarian, but I am pursuing my master's in library science degree right now because I started working here last summer. And, uh, oh, wow, two summers ago, that flew by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, two years ago, 2021. And I really just enjoyed the the way that our library functions as uh, a center in our town uh, for just community events. And not only just, I mean, I've always been passionate about reading and books and all the functions of a library, but seeing how it could really um, extend beyond that and especially after the pandemic become a gathering center again was really inspiring to me and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I decided to go back to get my master's and I'm really excited to, to follow through with it. Yeah, I think once a lot of people get that idea when they start working in a library, whether it's as a page or a clerk or anything, like once they get into a library and they start seeing how all the gears turn and they're like, wow, this is a place I want to stay in. So it's not surprising that I think we have like six members of our staff that are in library school right now. So exactly. I think that's a testament to, uh, to what Jen is doing as, you know, running our library and making it a place where you, you want to be. So, uh, yeah, it's a fun place to work. How about you, Erin? Why did you decide to become a librarian? Um, well, I came to it a little later in life, which I've met more late coming librarians than I thought. Um, I just, you know, I have a background in writing. I read a lot. I was teaching and, um, I was home with my kids and I was looking at, you know, being an adjunct again as, you know, English. And it's like, I don't want to be an adjunct. Um, I only have an MFA, so I'm not going to get probably anything more than that. So it's like, what should I do with myself? And my friend's stepson was going to library school. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then I thought about it and I was like, that's, that's cool. I spent so much time in libraries um and really just love the idea of helping people i love researching things so just the idea of like information like every now and then someone's at the desk and i can't find an answer for them and it frustrates me so much and they're like it's okay i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) if you need to know what this is eventually i find something but just that idea of being able to like help people and i love like you were saying john about the environment of the library Mm -hmm. i love like how and this is probably not what you were thinking of, how I can age into a library because I'm older at this point. So it's like, it's not, I mean, it can be a physical job, but not super physical. So that idea of, you know, if I'm, you know, 70 and I'm still in a library, I'd probably be okay. It's not like, you know, a nursing floor is something where I'd be running around, you know, dying uh, because I'd be so tired. But um, We talked about that in the last episode a little bit where, when we talked about like the civil service, how jobs work with the civil service department. Yeah. So, you know, jobs are, are kind of few and far between because people, partly because people can do this job for so long. Mm-hmm. And one, I think that's a, a lot of factors. One, it's a good job. People who are doing it are usually passionate about it. They love their job. They like doing the work. 
and it's so flexible in terms of your duties where um, like you said, like once you get up into your 70s, you know, you, your role might shift a little bit, but there's so many parts that make up the library where we can kind of still fit you in to mm-hmm. doing different things. So, yeah, yeah it's a great lifelong um, career. Yeah. yeah. You said you were a teacher at colleges. You were a professor. I, um, well, I got an MFA and I did um, some teaching before I went uh, and had kids. And then after I got my library degree, I ended up adjuncting at Stony Brook um, Mm -hmm. for writing. Somehow that ended up happening Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So I actually enjoyed that a lot. Um, But I I like being in the library a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And you have opportunities to teach in the library and do library programs and things like that. So I like that it has that kind of versatility that that if you want to be a librarian and you don't really want to be around people, you can catalog. (laughs) And if, you know, you really want to be around people, you know, you can do you know, like what Jonathan does and do community outreach and things like that or or what even you do Alex you do a lot of work with the patrons without like a lot of the programs and stuff like that yeah so yeah it's again it's a very flexible job there's a lot of different roles a librarian can play uh, so Gianna what about you you were what were you doing before you started working at Sayville um, so I was in school in my undergrad doing okay. um, a dual degree in history and psychology so I wasn't really sure how I wanted to combine those after I graduated so I just started working at the library because it was comfortable for me. It was really, like you said, Aaron, like a a great environment as a patron to be in. Um, And I thought back to when I was a student as well, like at my academic library at school, I was like, this is, these librarians were just saving my life like every single day, you know, like they really just came through, um, went above and beyond, even with like one reference question. And it's just like, you know, follow-up emails and all that. And that's kind of what drew me to just libraries in general, but then also like for my degree path, I'm looking to work in university libraries and archives eventually. So um, just being able to be on the other side of that interaction was really interesting to me and like use my research skills and interests to help students um, in the way that I was helped by the librarians at my school. So um, yeah, no, I really, I was, I mean, I was graduating in the middle of the pandemic and everything. So like we were all virtual in my commencement and, you know, as a lot of people were. So um, I didn't really, I had a hard time transitioning back, I guess, into the real world. And being at the library was really a huge part in, in that growth process and, and uh, healing, I guess, for not only just me, but a lot of people here that I've talked to, patrons and mm-hmm. employees yeah. alike. Yeah. So um, Yeah, I think a lot of people use the library as their first step back into right. yes. the right. normal. I'm using air quotes right now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. So you want to work in an academic library, which is very different. There is some overlap with yeah. what the daily duties are. Let's go back to library school. So you're going for your master's degree. We talked about this in the previous episode, how you need a master's degree to be a librarian and right. most even public libraries. But in the academic field, sometimes you need a, even a second master's yes. degree. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what is your, your specialty, your focus you're going on in library school? So um, I'm doing Queens College offers, which is a really great program, uh, the dual MLS MA degree. So it's master's in library science and master's in history. And so we take it's, there's not really a lot of overlap. It's basically you're just doing the two degrees, but you can do them concurrently. So it saves you time. And that way, when I graduate, I'll have um, well, I'm also doing the um, certificate in archives as well, which is just a few extra electives and hands on training. So hopefully when I graduate, I'll be able to work in 
whether it's a special collection, an archive of a school or a private repository or something like that. I, I would really like to work at a university, though. I just I love being in school. Um, I want to be in school whether or not I'm a student or not. So I know academia like, suits you. I, yeah, just it's a great environment. I, there's like a lot of innovation and learning going on, like lifelong learning. You know, how are you talking about before, Aaron, mm-hmm. with, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are when you're in college, you could you could come back or you could start fresh. And it's like everybody's learning something academically, but also like from each other's life experiences. So, um, yeah, that's the the degree I'm halfway through right now. How, how many years is the program? Um, you have, if you take it full time, you have up to three years to complete it. And so hopefully I've been doing like full time classes, but also summer terms. So I should be done by next fall in two years. Oh, nice. Okay. So yeah, because yeah. if I, I would, I'm almost done with my library degree right now, but like in order for me to get everything, I would have to finish all my history classes at the same time. So is that how it works? You get the degrees at the same time or yes. is, is it kind of staggered? Yeah, it's like a, it's a dual it's advertised as a dual program. So like you will have, it's written like MLS slash MA on my, what's going to be on my diploma, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the certificate in archives is additional and the preservation of cultural heritage materials is uh, the full name. But um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's one of the only programs I could find in New York that offered that ex- sort of like an expedited track. Um, otherwise, like you said, Alex, if I wanted to, if I graduated with my library degree, and then I decided I wanted to work in an academic library and they required me to have a specialty, um, then I wouldn't, I would have to go back for that. Start so, fresh. right. Do another year perhaps of, for a master's program, which wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be the end of the world because for example, like if you want to work in like an art library or something like a fine arts library, like you might go back and get an art history degree, yeah. not necessarily, you know, just general, cause that's what I'm doing right now is general history and you get to pick your focus within that. So I've just been taking electives right now to, to feel out what I'm interested in. And um, I've taken some really great classes. Uh, just this summer, I took uh, an introduction to South Asian history. So we just covered like broad time and space in that class. But it was it was something I never learned about before in that depth. Um, and then right now I'm in, I just finished a preservation, physical preservation class, which was so interesting. We learned all these different tools of how to repair archival materials and I used a lot of them in tech services where I work yeah, um, yeah. you know even though we don't have like really really old materials here it's nice to know like the basic functional skills that we need to repair them and then right now until the end of the month I'm in um, advanced archival practicum it's called it sounded very scary when I enrolled in it but um, it's really interesting because we're we're processing the papers of former Congressman Joseph Crowley, who was a Queens representative, and he donated his collection to Queens College. And we got to meet him and like learn how um, basically what he wanted to represent in his collection. And now we're doing it like as students, we're learning hands on how to do that. So it's really much more in-depth experience than I thought I would be getting at this level. So I'm really excited. I, I love Queens College. I think it's a fantastic school. And they've since I've I went there for my undergraduate degree as well and with Macaulay Honors College and they just off their faculty is like off the charts. We just have these great conversations in class that I'm, I'm just grateful to be there every single day. So you've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> little bit. I'm a little tired today, but <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. it's okay. Yeah. Oh, it's worth it. It's definitely yeah. worth it. It's now's the time. Like I have the time and the desire currently right now so i figured strike when the iron's hot exactly but you can hear it in your voice when you talk about it how interested you are in it so that's that's really nice it it really is intriguing like i wish i should have brought my little 
preservation kit up here that <laughs> they gave me so I could show all the different tools because it's it's so interesting the stuff that happens behind the scenes to me and like it always has been more like mythical I guess you could say but now that I'm actually learning like what goes on working in a public library and then seeing in my school's archive and their university library it's it's just like a whole new world that yeah. I'm excited to get into yeah so how much of your classes are in person versus online um actually they've They've just created more of an equal balance with that because when I first started, um, all the my history classes were in person and the library science classes were staggered. Some were hybrid, some were in person. Um, but I have all my classes this fall are going to be online, which is different. So I've, I haven't had that yet. But I've from what I've heard, I don't want to really speculate, but like they're trying to push our program a little bit more online so that mm-hmm. it's more attractive to people yeah. like uh, Buffalo is the other Buffalo's, school, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think they're trying to kind of give the option not to just replace their in-person classes, but um, cause you know, for people, if you live like out here in Long Island, it is a bit of a commute to get to Queens college, but um, yeah, if you can make it work, there's, you know, public transportation, driving <laughs> traffic, but um, yeah. yeah, it's, I, I go right now I'm, I'm going in person for the summer. So um. And I, but I did have one completely online class that just finished. So it's they they offer both, which is nice. I think for people who work and have kids and yeah, it makes the, the it makes the school much more attractive for sure. Yeah, and it gives you a huge pool of uh, perspective students to choose from. Aaron, you did your grad school online, is that yes, right? Yes, entirely yeah. online. Yeah, the university at Buffalo. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, I mean, it was convenient because I had small children at the time, so I didn't have to go to classes anywhere. Um, But at the same time, you didn't get to really know any of your professors. That was really before Zoom came in. So, like, you know, the professors who did occasionally do things, they were pre-recorded. So you're just watching a recording of something. You're not, like, interacting in any kind of way. So that was rough. We had a couple of professors who... um, would do a couple of like zoom like sessions just to talk just to be like you know what do you think what are your issues you know which was nice but mostly we were kind of on our own and which you know if you're self-motivated it's not bad but not always (laughs) and group work was very challenging in that sense because to me group work is always challenging but when you know your communication with people is on like you know a google doc you know that little side thing like what do you think about this what do you think about this and you're trying to build a website doing that that was that was a little challenging, but I do think Buffalo does a good job with that, with you know having everything online. And I'm sure things are different now, now that Zoom is so common, and you know different types of you know kind of video like programs like that that people can then interact. And but um, having taught like that, it's challenging as a, a professor to keep students' attention and things like that because it's just it, the dynamic is so different from a you know like a in-person classroom dynamic so it has just like anything else its strengths and its weaknesses you've seen it from both sides yeah both sides of the zoom (laughs) yes yeah yeah both sides and in a sense of you know as a teacher it's kind of nice i don't have to drive somewhere you know i'm sitting in my living room or my uh, office and then you know then i can hear the kids you know in the other room like (laughs) can you take them out you know ask my husband can you take them out for a little while while i have class and he's like sure which is nice um, he was very helpful like that, but but you see the students, their eyes glazing over at different points, and you're really trying to be interactive, but it's just, you know, there are so many of them are just intimidated, and like, you'd be like, so does anyone have any questions? <laughs> and they'll put it in the chat. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you can talk, it's okay. You yeah. can unmute yourself, go ahead and talk, but so many of them 
right. wouldn't want to. They just, do you find that with your online classes now? Honestly, yes. There is, there's a lot of different dynamics going on with, because I guess they offer online classes in different formats. So for example, like an async, completely asynchronous course, if you don't have to show your face, you don't yeah. have to talk to anyone unless you're in, you know, typing in like a discussion board posting. Um, you really like the incentive to go above and beyond like what's required of you to pass the course in the syllabus. It's, I guess, not really there for most yeah. people, you know, yeah. um, and at the same time, there's, you know, asynchronous courses that have like little check-ins like you just referred to with like oh let's meet yeah. and talk about it or you might have to do a group project and it's like you're emailing people or texting them maybe and you've never met them and it's a little hard to yeah try to work on the same schedule and, and you know have that camaraderie that you would like immediately get mm -hmm. maybe not everyone gets along but at least you can like spread something out on the table in front of you yes. and like talk talk yeah. about it a little more in depth but um yeah in person seems to be I guess like you said like it's the most intimidating in like online to be like the first person to talk where like if you're you know how the three of us are sitting in a room right now like we can have a conversation and right. and like yeah. look at each other like i'm not going to cut yeah. you yeah. off visual cues and right yeah. exactly yeah so it is a little different um that way but i've had i mean it is a, it's a lot about your learning style too because i've had a lot of good experiences with those class like the completely online classes where i felt like i actually learned more because i had the time to really like look through the readings and assess them for myself mm -hmm. and like and create my own response, whether it was asked as yeah. an essay or a post yes, or something yeah. versus like, okay, let's talk about these three or four readings in the span of a two hour class. Like, and we're, we might get stuck on a tangent or like one mm -hmm. topic and not really get to like all the points that, you know, it might've been a, the reading was assigned to convey. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. yeah. I really liked my, I did everything online and I, I think it really suited my one, my lifestyle at the time. I, enrolled in grad school when I was living in Rhode Island, and there were no grad schools that taught library, uh, had master's in library science in all of Rhode Island that I could find. As far, maybe Brown might have, but I wasn't getting into Brown. Um, but Simmons is where I ended up in Boston, so I had to do online. And I ended up actually working really well for me. I didn't have kids at the time. Now, I, no question I would do online. It wouldn't even be an option. Okay, right. Um, but then we moved to New York, so it was perfect. I could move across yeah. the country. I didn't have to worry about school at all. You know, it just, I'm an early riser. So I woke up and made my coffee, got on my laptop, you know, the asynchronous nature really, really worked for me. And, um, I still did it before the pandemic. So I think, you know, it probably wasn't as fleshed out online classes as they are now, but I don't know. It really worked for me. I, even in my undergrad, I, I didn't really get much out of lectures anyways. It was kind of just like I had to show up, so I didn't get points docked. Right, right. So I always, you know, I would go to the library and read the textbook. Like that's kind of how I was teaching myself anyway. So online was a pretty natural transition for me. But yeah, I, I think it's, that's maybe why there are many librarians kind of coming into it um, later in their careers yeah. because the grad school is something you can do online. But um, you, you're, Gianna, you're going for archival studies, right? I wanted to do that, but at Simmons, you couldn't do that program online. It makes sense why you couldn't, because you needed that hands-on experience. But that was the one program you couldn't do online. I was like, ah. But I, uh, I went... It's never too late. <laughs> I guess so. No, I love it here. I'd have to give up the podcast. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, liked, uh, I liked online school. If you're intimidated by it, I think um, 
I don't know. It's not it's not as bad as you might think. It's not. I, I feel like there are so many um, ways that they do it. You know, you have the asynchronous classes. You have the synchronous classes where you have Zoom and things like that. And I feel like a lot of the professors are very willing to help students, you know, deal yeah. with, with things like that. Um, and there are always, like, little tricks and stuff, too, I'm sure. Like, like I, I do better with... Um, as opposed to reading with listening. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes I would even like read notes out to myself or I would write lecture notes or whatever and then read them out loud to myself so I could hear it just to kind of help instill in me, you know, what they were teaching because otherwise just reading it, you know, my eyes would get tired. And right. That would be mm -hmm. it. But um, they're always, I feel like most people can adapt to it. I think it is helpful if you're a self-starter if you're, you know, able to kind of motivate yourself in that kind of way. You know, when I think about, you know, how many kids have had to do that, you know, like during the pandemic right. and how a lot of them just adjusted, like they just managed to like find a way to learn. Not all of them did, unfortunately, but, you know, some of them definitely, you know, figured it ways, you know, to make it work for them. And some may have even thrived from right. from going online. You know, if you have social anxiety or something, yeah. and maybe it's easier to yeah. turn off your camera. and. <laughs> So um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about my specialization. So I ended up doing information science and technology, which is sort of the flip side of, of what you're going for, the archival study. So um, I imagine you're doing some digitization stuff too as part of archival. So I guess I still did a little bit of that. There was a little bit of overlap with my program, but mine was more like, what do you do with those digital files once you've right. scanned them and everything? So it was database management, things of, things of that nature. Usability, that was a really fun class I took. Um, like UX design, like designing websites and databases to be like user friendly and not just like librarian friendly. <laughs> um, one of the coolest projects I did was I got to do a usability study on NASA's astrophysics database, which is, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was like a multi-month project. I got to do like usability studies with like people like live testing it and I get to do the program where you can like track where eyeballs are going on the screen that was really fun so you can see like little like a heat map basically of where people are looking and everything so that was really cool and then they gave me a t-shirt and i love free t-shirts <laughs> <laughs> i got an a and a t-shirt so that was totally worth it better than that i'm curious what uh, we went to library school a couple of years ago so i'm wondering is there anything maybe they're they're teaching now that they might not have in the past like what's are they talking about like media literacy and stuff oh, like yeah, that definitely yeah i mean I don't know exactly what's changed since I don't have mm -hmm. the experience of the past, but um, we spent a lot of time in my introductory courses just talking about media and information literacy um, among lots of different user groups. You could take, like, they touched on it briefly, and then they said, like, if you want a more in-depth class, like, take this class for teens or mm -hmm. senior adults or, you know, different, different demographics. We also... We talk a lot about access as well in many ways, like physical, intellectual access, pursuing more socially just alternatives to what has been practiced in the past. And that's been a huge theme and which I really appreciate that our school's been spending a lot of time on. We've even, I think I've seen some new course offerings that are happening this fall. They're doing American Sign Language for librarians. So like they're offering, it's like a language course in our program, but then all like library scenarios, which is kind of cool. So that you could, you yeah. might not, you know, it's hard to learn an entire new language in just a semester, but yes. yeah, but they're, they're kind of focusing on that. So I thought that was interesting. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know specific, a lot of other specifics, what would be different, but um, 
I think my school has made a concerted effort to just push a lot of, I don't want to say agendas, but like a lot, a lot of change forward, like positive social change forward. And it's evident in their course offerings and uh, the faculty is really excited to talk about with any students that want to start up something library related or it's great. It's really, it's, um, yeah. Queens college sounds great. It seems like they're adapting with the times. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. They had a lot of, I think as I started, um, a lot of new faculty also was hired. So like I, I got to, everyone was like learning at the same time, like this, what's going on at this school. And it's a really exciting place to be right now. And specifically, um, in archival studies, uh, they've, they've been mentioning that in our intro courses, like the field is changing. Like it's a lot of, um, critical theory coming in since late nineties, I guess you could say, and then like new work being published and these things being translated into praxis and, and how we can do that and kind of not, not just like read about it. Okay. That's, that's cool to know, but actually em- embrace it as a professional that's graduating with, you know, within the next year or two. So a lot of in- exciting, interesting work being done there. Aaron, how about you? What was your what was your specialty in library school? Did you go straight MLS or It was basically straight, yeah. yeah. I mean I mean information science is included in that and I definitely took like database courses and uh, how to build websites. So I got to build a website from the bottom up, which was really interesting. Um, spent a few nights, you know, three AM, you know, oh, not yeah. realizing my foot was asleep and falling over, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, a lot of um, like reference, um, looking at how, you know, users, you know, utilize the library and things like that. And then, um, collection development, that kind of thing. And then I started, unfortunately they didn't have, I wanted to do, um, like a health sciences, um, class, but they didn't offer it. I did end up doing an internship though at, uh, Stony Brook's, uh, health sciences library, which was really, really interesting. yeah. Yeah. There's a very good group of people over there. And um, it was it was very enlightening. Just just even how much they have in their collection is just yeah. amazing. It's amazing how much access they have and how many different tools they have. Like every year, you know, new things, you know, coming like online tools that the students can use and things like that. Um, it's really incredible, like what you could do in a library now mm-hmm. that people don't realize. I mean, how many people come in here, you know, to the reference desk and, you know, like, I didn't know, you know, this was available. I didn't know you had museum passes. I didn't know, you know, you could go onto Ancestry and it's like, you can. <laughs> yeah. The best thing yeah. you can do to promote a library is just get people like to go in the step in the front door because there's right. going to be something that they didn't think of, you know, whether it's 3D printing, hey, we have a recording studio we're in right now you can use. Um, You can use it to record your own podcast. Christina does sewing programs. We have cricket things if you want to make t-shirts and tote bags. Um, I'm converting VHS tapes for somebody right now. So, you know, things that you don't think a library can do. I mean, there's, and if we don't do it yet, if you are interested, maybe we'll figure out a way to do it. Yeah, so, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really fun, um, it's a really fun job because it's a constantly changing. You know, I didn't go to school to do a podcast. I didn't go yeah. to school to run a makerspace, <laughs> yeah. but um, we're doing it, and it's it's fun. It keeps you on your toes. You know, I love learning new things. That's I think a trait all librarians possess. They love lifelong learning. We're always yes. curious and yes. hungry to learn mm-hmm. new things, and the world just keeps changing and throwing new things at us. So. We talked about AI for like 15 or 20 minutes in the last episode, so I don't want to even mention it in this episode, but that's another thing we're going to have to learn uh, pretty soon. 
I don't think we talked about this very much in the previous episode, but if anyone's curious about going to library school, you know, what are you actually learning in library school? What is library science? So I just, I wrote down a few core classes that I think we've all probably taken. I had to like go back through all my my notes to find what my actual courses were. But um, I think the reference interview, that was, I think I took a whole class on just the reference interview. And for our listeners who don't know, the reference interview is, and you have a question for a librarian, they need, we need to dig into that question, uh, reflect back what you're saying to try to, because most people don't know how to phrase what they're even looking for correctly most of the times, or they don't, might not even know what it is they're asking. So, you know, digging in, finding out what the, the user is looking for. And then the flip side of that is, is reference resources, knowing what are like the correct resources to go to for what, what the problem is they're trying to solve. So there's uh, at least two courses, maybe even three courses you might take on just that alone. Then the other side is the information organization. So cataloging, that's a little bit of what you do, Gianna, right? Mm-hmm. For, for the public library, but it's no different in academic libraries or anywhere else. Um, content standards, so how the public library's catalog can talk to other libraries' catalogs, and that's how we can get things from Nassau or the New York State Public Library or wherever, Ohio. <laughs> so all that metadata and everything, that's all. Somebody has to enter it in. You know, Somebody has to track all this stuff. And uh, used to be, I guess, a, a bigger part of what a librarian's day-to-day task would be. Um, but you know, a little bit, some of it's being automated now, but, you know, it's still something you, you should know uh, because things pop up every day. Gianna, I know, you know, Aaron, I'm sure somebody's found a mistake on some book that's miscatalogued or something, then you have to know how to change those things on the fly sometimes. So are there any other core classes that I'm, I'm forgetting? Anything you can think of? Collection development. Collection development. For me, that was a big one. I, I found that actually really interesting, this idea of you know, you think about, you know, you have all these resources in the library. It's like, that's awesome. You have all these resources, but who picks them? You know, and depending on if it's academic or public, you know, you have all these people that have to take all these resources and all these books, like we look through Publishers Weekly and things like that. And what does our community want? And what can we put out there that they may not know they want yet? which is sometimes also tricky, you know, because you want to kind of give them what you know they're going to want. They're going to want you know, the Jody B. Colt, they're going to want, you know, the, the Colleen Hoovers, they're going to want these things. But what about these newer writers, you know, that they might not know that we can kind of put out there for them to be like, oh, this looks interesting. And then you can build from there. I think that's actually kind of challenging in some ways. But um, learning that, you know, on different levels was really interesting. Um, and I think, too, I took a instruction, like library instruction, um, because I was thinking to go into academic libraries. And um, just the idea of how to, um, like you were talking about this idea of usability for like um, computer resources and things like that. It's kind of uh, the same kind of thing with, okay, we need to design like an online tutorial for, you know, people to know how to use, you know, databases A, B, and C. How are we putting that together? You know, what kind of, you know, um, learning styles do we anticipate these people will have? You know, all those, there's so much that goes into it that you don't think about when you're a student and you're going on to this, you know, like libguide or whatever. And you're like, (laughs) oh, okay, this is kind of cool. This is helpful. Or maybe it's not. So it's that that's actually I find that really interesting. And I found that very useful. Yeah, I don't I didn't take that class, um, but that would have been very helpful for me because I'm (laughs) writing tech guides all the time for people, um, instructional signs 
back when we were closed for uh, during the pandemic, I was doing instructional videos on how yeah. to check out ebooks, how to use some of our streaming services and things like that. I had really no guidance. I was just watching, like trying to copy what other YouTube tutorial videos I could find. So um, that would have been very helpful. And it's, I teach so many classes and programs at the library that, uh, and that was just no prior experience interacting with people in a professional <laughs> yeah. sense, let alone teaching classes. So uh, that was all learning as I went. So yeah, yeah. that would have been helpful. If I could go back and do library school again, I probably would have not done so much uh, behind the scenes coding stuff and more, <laughs> more things like that. Yeah. Um, so what was the first one you mentioned? I'm sorry. Oh, collection development. Collection development. Yeah. yeah. That's another one. I, I, I don't, it was definitely covered in maybe the like library basics or, you know, or library organization or something, but I don't think I took a whole class on collection development. That's another thing I, I had to learn, you know, on the desk, you know, as I, on-the-job training, and it is very challenging. You know, it's not just looking at the New York Times bestseller list and just yeah. checking off. Okay, I got the new James Patterson book. You know, nonfiction. Like, how do you order non-fiction for nonfiction? Is hard, yeah. You know, we have every topic of human knowledge. You know, you have to make sure you have as much of it covered as you can without being too esoteric. Yeah. But you need to have something for everyone. You never know. Like when someone's going to come in, and you know, I need a book on. Grieving a loved one. You better make sure you have a book on that. Yeah. So, yeah, fiction has its own challenges, ordering for fiction, you know, because everyone has their own taste. There's only so much you can order based on bestseller lists. So we're reading reviews from multiple sources, um, award-winning books for, you know, not just National Book Award, but lesser-known awards. So it it is a challenge, and it it does take quite a bit of time. You know, we, we kind of grumble about it when we get a new shipment of like uh, literary journals dumped on our desk. <laughs> At least I do. Oh, I, I love getting them, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so much fun going through them. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, too, um, to see, you know, what other people, and I don't always know what other people pick, but I think it's very helpful to have, you know, a group of people who um, have different interests because you can see you know, kind of based on some choices, like, oh, I, I think I know who picked that, you know, like, <laughs> ju- just because we all have our own different tastes, and that is somewhat reflective, and that's another, like, thing you have to consider with collection development, is I'm, I'm just buying this just because I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, Do... Constantly yeah. checking myself for that. <laughs> yeah. I think this would be cool, but would someone else, and I kind of run that through the filter, and, you know, sometimes it's a no. Like, the first book I ordered here, or ordered ever, was a Japanese mythology book, and I was like, well, should I order this? I know I think this is interesting. And I saw we had nothing like that here. And then I was thinking anime is so popular now. And I started looking you know, through uh, Sierra to see who else had anything like this. And that those books were going down. I'm like, you know what? This is valid. This is a valid you know, thing to add to our collection. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> Check that one off. I like um, I like trying to guess who ordered what too. Yeah. You know, if it's if you know normally, well, the way I was taught is if you order a book, you cross it off the journal, so nobody else has to yeah. look it up and save the next person some time. Uh, that's what the grumbling's about. I love ordering and reading about books, but the grumbling is when you get like a stack of yes, you know, yeah. twenty journals just jumped on your desk at once that you have to go read through. Um, but I like seeing like, you know, if something struck through with a, a bright fluorescent pink pen, I know Christina yeah, ordered yes, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if it was like violently scribbled out, it probably means I ordered it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting and it's something I have to, you, you're right. You have to check like your own interests first. You can just like, is this something that I want to read or is this something that I think Saville would like to read? Yeah. 
Um, and I order for the, the 300s, which is the political section. So I'm constantly saying like, okay, we haven't enough books about this topic, but we need more books on this topic. Like I can't order like my favorite people. Like I have to yeah. keep, and there's some stuff I don't like ordering. I'll, I'll be honest, but I do it. I do it because we need to cover all interested parties. Yes, so. exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, I think it's easy to, to uh, accuse a library of, of having a biased opinion, but it's something that we're, we're trained in not letting our, uh, checking our biases at the door, especially when we're ordering for the collection, because it's for a whole community. It's not just for, for our reading. We're not yeah. curating our own bookshelves. Yeah. <laughs> did you do collection development or no? Um, not specifically like as a, as a course, but we did, we did touch on it a little bit um, in my, in my first two introduction classes. And I think something that you're both, you know, pulling out is like knowing your user base and not yes. being, not being presumptuous. Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to be as inclusive as possible. And like, we, we talked about this idea, I guess, in theory, a lot of neutrality of the librarian and how that's basically a myth because yeah. nobody, you know, like we can't, <laughs> you can try your best to yeah. check your, like you said, check your biases and um, understand that like you're coming to the table, you're a whole person, like you're not, you can't just be a robot, you know, and, and not infuse any of your personality or decisions into your actions as, as a librarian or professional in any other in industry. But um, I think what's important is like looking at that as an opportunity versus a hindrance, because, you know, you could, you could bring something maybe different. Like you said, with your example of the Japanese mythology book, like you saw something like there, there might've been an opening for and yeah. you jumped on it. And, and that some, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people were like, this is so awesome that this is here, you know? Yeah. And just, and like you mentioned, Alex, with the political collection where um it's important to have everything because if we're we don't want to fall into like the territory of censorship where we're not having just because we might think something is correct or incorrect or the temper of the times might be leaning one way or another doesn't mean that there's not room for research or other right there's a historical yeah. importance to it exactly well. yeah. yeah even you know in public and academic libraries alike i think uh there's room for all of that and just not closing conversations, I think is an important thing to remember. Like we just want to keep its channels open mm -hmm. and like as things do come up, as they, they will and they always will, um, yes, it's yeah. important to have policies. I know that's something we talked about a lot in our classes, like yes. the collection development collection policy. Development. Yes. Like if you have something oh, yeah. written down on paper, it's so important um, to have that publicized for your users because yes. then it's like, like you, you were saying, Alex, you, you're not going to take the blame individually as a librarian because, mm -hmm. you know, a group of people together have decided on like this is our process and if it needs to be amended we will amend it you know we'll yes. talk about it and yeah. just leave the leave the channels open i think that's a huge takeaway from my intro level courses was having well-developed policies is yeah. important I, I wanted to ask you about that actually yeah. um speaking of like things they're talking about more in library school are they talking more about like book challenges and the increase in book banning and yes. things like that we talked about that a lot yeah. um just and just had very open conversations about it which was great um because it it's a very heavy topic it's it's heightened right yes. now and yeah. i mean through the ebbs and flows of history i feel like there's been times where it's it's been more extreme where like i think right now would be one of those times but it's also like something that like i said before opens conversations that maybe some people don't want to have and that's okay but like otherwise a lot of people do want to talk about it and maybe there's something that we can all learn from each other based on like a disagreement you yes. know yeah yeah the the having the policy in place and having a formal um process in place if someone does want to challenge a book 
these are the steps you have to take. Oh, yes. Then it's reviewed. And then that committee that reviews the book will make a decision. And I've been on that committee several times, even back when, before I became a librarian, you know, when I was just a trainee sitting on the desk and someone comes up screaming at you, why do you have this book? And you're like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have that policy in place. You can say, okay, well, let me go see what, yeah. what, the, whatever, what right. the policy is. Yeah. Um, but I've seen the, the committee go either way. Um, I also ordered the graphic novel collection. So when someone challenged a graphic novel that I ordered, I was part of that part of the review process and the book was was taken out of our collection. I thought it should have stayed, but I was, you know, others thought otherwise and that I respect their decision and it was taken out. I've seen it go the other way. Someone doesn't like this book. Well, unfortunately, you know, we have to have books that represent all shapes and colors and and we we left it in. All right. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we'll end the episode with talking about what we're into right now. Awesome. Okay, and we're back. Uh, does anyone want to get started? Anyone anxious to talk about something? Otherwise, I don't mind starting off. Okay, thank you. I will go first. So the thing I'm into right now, um, I just finished a great book. It's called Under the Eye of Power by Colin Dickey. And it's, uh, it's a book on a topic that uh, I've always been interested in, uh, which is conspiracy theories. Um, specifically... I'm not interested in conspiracy theories. I'm interested in what, why people believe conspiracy theories and what drives them to believe conspiracy theories. And that's what this book is about. So his thesis is basically that conspiracy theories allow the believer to see the world um, as they want to see it, not merely as an arbitrary series of random events. So at least that's how he frames conspiracy theories, which is some, that's what I basically agree with. And... It's a fascinating book. It goes through all of... It's a very focused on uh, specifically America, the United States, history. So it goes all the way back to the colonial times and works all the way up through modern day. And it kind of... Uh, it, it talks about all the conspiracies, the conspiracy theories that were arising during all these points in history. And he does his best to try to come up with you know why people... It, it, it ties together or... or does ties a thread between all of these conspiracies and shows how they're all linked and how most conspiracy theories are just rehashes of previous conspiracy theories. They just kind of point the boogeyman, the boogeyman shifts really, not the conspiracy itself. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. He starts with, you know, the Salem witch trials, which everyone knows. And then the American revolution, this is something I wasn't really that familiar with, but there was a, a huge conspiracy that, that the American Revolution was started by the French as a way of pulling troops out of England so France could invade England. I didn't know about that, but that was like widespread and, and politicians were, were spouting it as well. Um, then it goes to like the 1800s with the anti-Catholic um, kind of panics. And he, he does a whole chapter on uh, one a big riot that took place in Boston that, I, that was kind of buried in history where... Um, I guess Protestants burned down a nunnery looking for uh, like pedophile crypts and things in the basement. I was like, wow, that kind of rings true to a present day. So it's, it's, there's a lot of things like that where, you know, there'll be a conspiracy, something that's happened 200 years ago and it has all of the same uh, whistles and, and phrasing of things that you hear today. So it's, it's really interesting that how it, it keeps coming back some of the just some other points that i got out of the book um conspiracies they give the believers uh epistemic power like knowledge power over 
people, like the sheeple, basically. So it you can get kind of a power trip out of it too. So the conspiracy theories are, are you know, a way of not feeling like completely lost in in a a, a world that's just getting more and more chaotic and, and seemingly harder to understand as it as it goes. So it's a way of kind of carving out a little piece of the world for you to give yourself like a, you know, a false sense of power. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. And then he goes, you know, into the 1960s, there's a real ramp up in, in conspiracy theories with the MK Ultra. So that kind of like put fuel on the fire because all of a sudden conspiracy theorists had real evidence of a, con- a real conspiracy. Um, so that kind of that added fuel to the fire. And then JFK assassinations that add, that just made things even worse. And then the internet comes around, do your own research, and he talks about how, what's the name of the, uh, oh, the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's people with little expertise greatly overestimate knowledge, uh, their own knowledge. And they say how, you know, when you're doing your own in, in research online, we all know this as librarians, if you go in with, a bad, with your biases, you're going to get biased results. So the internet is just an echo chamber, as, you know, this is talked about in the news, not just in library schools. So, um, you know, it's, it was a really interesting book. And um, one of my, my favorite novelist, uh, Thomas Pynchon, this is a theme in all of his books, is like paranoid people in, and believing conspiracies and like the world's out to get them. And that's kind of like a running theme in all of his books. And I was pleasantly surprised that he was uh, mentioned twice in this book. He was quoted from one of his famous books and, uh, and they talked about one of his characters in another chapter. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I think Christina, our adult librarian, is also reading this as well. And she mentioned that she read his previous book. is called Ghostland, I believe. And it's about kind of haunted places in America. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the same thing, but about ghosts. So I thought maybe you... I've heard of it. I have not read that. But, yeah, I've heard of that one. So, yeah, yeah I'll have to look into that. So, uh, so that's my book recommendation. Again, it's called Under the Eye of Power by Colin Dickey. It's not too long, you know. It's a, it's a history book, but it's light history. You know, it doesn't get. It's not too heavy. It's a, it's a nice quick read. That's what I got. That sounds like a very a timely choice. Actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Thing. Definitely. You know, when you're talking about um, <laughs> how we talk about it a little bit in library school with misinformation and disinformation, and how your information behavior, like the term where like you're or you're seeking behavior, like what you're drawn to versus um, what might be out there if you if you approach with a less biased or yes. driven mm-hmm. idea of searching and like just how crazy search engines actually are like we I know you said you don't want to talk about AI so I'm not going to because <laughs> I don't know anything about it either but just how much of your actions and choices subconsciously as a user filter into what it is that you're retrieving yes and I also wanted to ask you if you've watched the x-files because I've always wanted to. I've seen the movies, but not okay. the show. Is it worth going back and? Well, I mean, as someone that's watched like season one to nine, like every single episode, <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, no, it it kind of. I mean, obviously, it's a very different sort of conspiracy. It's more like you know, aliens, extraterrestrial things going on. But um, just the idea of the psychology behind it and what, who believes in what and why, and how that changes with many different overlaying factors like yeah. uh government like you you mentioned like there's things there are actually conspiracies that happen right. so like when that when those things get unearthed what that also opens up the channels for and it's it's yeah. it's i mean it's a 90s show so like 
Yeah. I gotta watch it. But still, it's still, still worth it. It's okay. worth it for yeah. the nostalgia, if if nothing else. Yeah. So. Um, I know that's queuing up your thing pretty well. But it, wanna, it, it does have... actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm reading something as well, but um, I just happened to finish uh, earlier today before I came to work. Um, it's and it's not something I would normally watch. It's a it was a a five episode uh like docuseries called ufos investigating the unknown and it's um national geographic did it and it's actually on streaming on disney and basically it's you know starting with you know this fact that you know the u.s government has now admitted yeah our navy pilots have seen plenty of strange things in the sky and occasionally they almost hit our navy pilots and we didn't think this was a problem before but maybe we should (laughs) Um, but then goes all the way back into like, you know, people starting to report these things in the 40s and then the start of Project Blue Book, um, which is actually also a series about, um, I think it's, I forget what show, what uh, streaming service it's on, but uh, it was kind of the scientific lead for that. His name was J. Allen Hynek. And he was, I think, I don't know if he was an astrophysicist or an astronomer, but he was kind of put in the hot seat of, okay, you know, go out there and see if these things are true. And he really wasn't a believer until he finally started looking at the cases and was like, okay, 80% of these are, they're explainable, but there's 20% every time there's 20% that we don't know what it is. And that doesn't mean it's extraterrestrial. It doesn't mean anything like that, but we don't know what it is and we need to look into it. And the government didn't really want to do that. They eventually shut down project blue book and just, you know, it just goes more into how then civilians started taking this on um, you know, looking into these things in as scientific a way as they could, you know, having like hotlines where you could report seeing, you know, unidentified flying objects and things like that. Um, and these, you know, big cases like the Arizona lights where you had like hundreds of people seeing these events. And then, you know, the government supposedly didn't look into it at all. And it's like, well, wouldn't that be an issue? <laughs> but it's just treated as um, like mass hysteria, like it's, it's laughed at, like actually they showed the government of Arizona at the time, he had a press conference and he was like, well, you know, so many people saw this and I think it's important that we should look into it. And, you know, this is the person who's going to look into it. And it was someone dressed up in like an alien costume. And so many people who saw these lights and were, you know, in some cases enamored with it, in some cases intimidated, were very angry because they're like, we're, we're not hallucinating here. You know, there are so many of us. How dare you? Um, and he eventually actually came back after he had um, left office and admitted that he saw them. And then was on a panel in like, I think it was 2013 or 2014, was on a panel with all these different pilots who had seen all these different things. And we're like, we don't know what these things are. We're not stupid people. You know, we're very educated. We're in the skies all the time. These things do things that nothing on earth can do so we need to know what these things are because you know it could be a threat to someone and just you know it kind of finishes with finally you know there's more of a a little bit more of a recognition with you know the the government finally coming out with saying yeah yeah you know we have recordings of some of these things and you know these things exist and we don't know what they are and we'll see what happens but it actually does waylay into conspiracy and they talked about that a little bit in the show about how you know, sometimes they have like this kind of seed of truth in it, and then it just gets taken off in a direction. And what can often feed that is secrecy and how a lot of like things about like, let's just take the UFO phenomenon, this idea that the government, you know, initially started looking into these things with Project Blue Book and then started holding back 
and then not talking about it and discrediting people and no one could talk about it. And you know that there's probably more to it, but they're hiding things. And then obviously people are going to come up with their own stories about like Area 51 and everything else. So, so it was really, it was very interesting, you know, and I'm a skeptic, so I'm not like a ufologist or like someone who really follows that. But to me, it was just really interesting looking at, you know, everything that had gone on behind it and all of these people who have seriously researched this and are like, listen, this, this needs more research. And why is that a bad thing? So I'm done rambling. Conspiracy theories always, they always arise in those, the unknowns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might have a few data points, but, you know, filling in that gap is where the conspiracies, that's where they grow. So, you know, research is the only way to really, or exposing what you know is really the only way to give it up. But sometimes, you know, if it's a government, it might be a state secret or something they don't. Maybe it's like their own missile testing that they don't want to reveal they're doing. So, uh, yeah. Very, very fascinating. It's funny that we both took those and then <laughs> X Files to yeah, right. really yeah. bring it all I was together. just like, this show, this, you like the show? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not as serious as what you two are speaking about, but um, they're, they're, it strikes a lot of chords as well. But yeah, um, yeah and I think, I mean, it, when you were talking, Erin, it kind of reminded me of a little bit what I was going to talk about, what I'm into, because I'm oh, just, funny. I've just been, yeah, well, I mean, in, in a, in a distant way, I guess I'm making a connection because what I'm into this summer is still school related. I can't remove myself from it right now. So, yeah, yeah. but, um, just archives as, um, accountability as well for whether it's government or individuals and what both of you spoke about, you know, with research, like having, having these repositories available, um, to people who want to do research in a way that's not, you know, it's it's a primary source that you can go to. If it's something like footage, like I know this, it gets, like you were saying, it gets a little tricky with government files and records because like, you know, a lot of things are restricted or um, for national, national security reasons or what, whatever the case is. And, and just like um, knowing that a lot of the secrecy, like you said, feeds into the distrust and because it's like, why would you not? say something if there wasn't anything to hide so i like it yeah. you can understand like going back to i guess the psychology of it all like you can understand why these things emerge but it's also there's a lot a lot more to it i guess than yeah than me side but um yeah i think it's interesting just as just from a perspective like i know you're saying you're not like you're not believing in it but it doesn't even if you were like it's it, well it is I, I definitely think people you know, can see things or especially if you're talking about Navy pilots, you know, things like that, that, that don't make sense. You know, they're making, you know, they're going thousands of miles an hour and they're making like right turns. It's like that just hard rights and that doesn't happen. So just that alone is really interesting. And to me, you know, why wouldn't you investigate it? Wouldn't that, yeah. why, why, why the stigma? Right. You have to ask yourself, you know, why the stigma? And that goes for a lot of like things that are, you know, typically called paranormal you know whether it be you know cryptozoology or you know ghosts you know anything like that that goes for any of those things yeah i think just humans are not comfortable with unknowns we need we need an answer and if you're not going to provide one we're going to make one up just to make us feel better at the end of the day yeah sorry we did you No, that's okay that's that was just i mean kind of related i just was interested in what you were saying but um yeah no my current thing that I've, that I've been really interested in researching is um, community archiving and the ways that that can be implemented in across different libraries. So like public, academic, 
independent. And, um, you know, that's something that I think we've talked about earlier in our conversation too, with like kind of understanding what a community wants and needs and allowing them to really collaborate on that, whether it's in a digital setting or in person or both. And um, so that's something that I've been focusing a lot on in my course studies, but then also outside of school, just trying to think about ways even here, like on our library, like how can we, you know, we do have a small archive here. And I think I didn't know of that until I started working here. And uh, because I started helping out with a little bit of the inventory and it's so interesting someone who's grown up in Sable, like being able to see everything that we've had collected, yeah. you know, in collaboration with the historical society here um, that's available to anybody that comes in and asks. And it's a lot of the time it's like, I think you were saying with the, uh, the reference interview, like you might not know what you are exactly looking for. You, maybe you have a little bit of interest in something, but like until you come in and ask someone or express your interest, then you, you might not find it. So, um, yeah, in our in my school, I've spoke a little bit about it before. Um, we really do focus a lot on up and coming methods of archiving, librarianship, just any type of information studies related fields. And so, um, not that I mean, communities have been archiving themselves since the beginning of time. You know, that's just how like it's natural to collect. And whether it was a formalized mm-hmm. academic study of it or not, it doesn't matter because um, every you know, every group of people will have a trace that they want to document and pass on to the next generation. So um, that's something that I'll be doing starting in the fall. I'll be doing, it's a two-part fellowship. So the first part, I'll be at a corporate archive. And the second part, I'll be at a community archive. And I'm really excited to get into that because I, first of all, I don't know, I don't have any professional experience in that area. So I'm looking forward to learning, but um, I think going forward in that direction would be really exciting for any community to do, whether it's at their, like I said, at their public library or somewhere else. And um, I, I'm i just like nerding out over it because I, <laughs> I think it's really exciting because it gives, um, especially in a post-COVID environment where like a lot of the documentation during that time period came from individuals that were experiencing it themselves. There wasn't really like, you know, oh, tell us what you're going through right now. Like it was a lot of social, me- social media or like home yeah. collecting and like, and you know, um, I like the idea that the community archive can also be um, a very therapeutic thing for a lot of people. And you can bring almost, almost like um, I don't, I don't want to use the word like shrine, but like kind of, you can have your own um, collection that's special to you, whether it's something that you keep to yourself in your attic, or if you think it's important to your community and representative of your experience, you can bring it someplace like here, you know, and and just, and show that like this, this happened to me or this happened to my family and we're a part of this community. And I think that's something exciting that I'd like to, to learn more about in the future. It's fascinating. Yeah. Do you have like a dream project in mind? No, I have a, a lot of different dream projects in mind, not one singular one, but um, so I think that I'm really excited about uh, crowdsourcing with uh, when it comes to community archiving. So just kind of uh, getting a project of any sort that you want to you want to document on to some type of social media platform and then allowing people to share I think there's so much that's missed there but like by excluding people from the process of documenting themselves you know like there's so so people can have agency in doing that yeah. and kind of like no this is not a term that I would use to describe myself as a member of this community so like here's my input here you know I think that would be 
that would re- be really awesome if we could move towards that in the future. Because I would, I would love to see our archive here, like open up to, like kind of do like an archive workshop. Like anybody that wants to come in and see, oh, what do we, what do we have here in our in our local archive? Like how does this relate? to Maybe it doesn't relate to you, but maybe there's something that you want to see represented here. You know, I just I was in there the other day and I saw the COVID book the, from what happened mm-hmm. here because I that was before I worked here. And I thought that was such a great way to document like who was working here, what did it look like? And, you know, people a hundred years from now, if they see that book, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll know, yeah. you know, what's going on. And it's, it's very interesting to me. I wish our archive was a little bigger so yeah. we could fit more stuff in yes, there. Definitely. Yeah. But uh, that's where digitization comes into play. So, and I know that's a project that Steph's been working on. Our local history librarian has been working on for as long as I've been here. Uh, but it's a slow process, but yes. we're trying to make very everything... expensive too. That's yeah. a hard part is, you know, a lot of these things like they're, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like it's, you know, it's ideal in theory, like, oh, we should do this. We should do that. And it's like staff money yeah. time. Like these are all real, very real factors that, you know, inhibit, unfortunately inhibit a lot of things from happening. But um, please continue. Sorry. No, I mean, but that's maybe that's the way the community can get involved helping with the you know, even if it's just scanning things, you know, that doesn't, right. you don't need a master's degree to figure that out. But, yeah. you know, it, 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 every little bit of lightened the load can uh, can move it along. So. Right. And it creates like a sense of attachment and investment in, you know, whether this is your community that you've grown up in or not, like it's you're part of it now. And then, every, you know, you're welcome to contribute. And I think mm-hmm. that would be, I've actually, there there are a lot of events, like I think they do like traveling archive events where like community archive events, so they, they'll take almost like a fair, like you can go with your materials and people will walk, like you said, scanning, walk you through that or how to describe things and, and create metadata of your own. And it's, I think it's just really interesting, interesting to have that collaborative experience. Cause I feel like before I started studying archives as a student, I was like, I have no, what is it? It's just like a library. Right. And then, you know, it's, (laughs) it's just older stuff, but not necessarily, you know, there's like, it's a lot of, yes, a lot of more primary sources than a library might have, but it's also, it can be so much more and it's yeah. evolving. Like, mm-hmm. at, like our understanding of it is evolving as we're creating them. So, cause it's a constant process and it's one of the most mind blowing things to me that I learned was like archiving in a sense, it's like the end of a records life cycle where like, you, okay, so we have a document that we produce here, like someone's application to work here. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it has to be held on to for a certain period of time and for institutional accountability and everything, legal reasons, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, it's either when there's no use for this record anymore, it's either going to be shredded or sent off to the side of a mountain. Apparently that's where they store a lot of corporate (laughs) records and, you know, just, just different, you know, like so uh, such a large percentage of records are actually destroyed and we still have so much of it that needs to be preserved in archives for basically permanent retention. And it's like, you know, how, how do we justify, I guess it reminded me when you're talking about the collection development um, and how, archives have I guess their own usually it's like their own policy for that yes repository by repository but like you know it it kind of like I'll have like an out-of-body experience sometimes thinking about all the records that are in the world right now and like how many of them are going to make it through and how many aren't and like who gets to decide that and who should get to decide it you know and I I guess the answer I keep coming back to myself is like everyone you know community everyone should have a say in it and input but again easier said than done in theory versus practice you know I mean, you mentioned this a little earlier, uh, Gianna, that, you know, everyone has their own personal archive in their house. It might just be photos in a shoebox somewhere in your attic. 
Um, but here at, at a public library, I help people, I teach classes on it all the time, like how to take, how to digitize things, how to, um, you know, put them even if it's in cloud storage or something, you know, I'm digitizing tapes, I already mentioned it, VHS tapes, those are going to, they're going to, they're not going to last forever. Right. And it's better to digitize them before they, uh, you know, mold eats away at them or dust or they just deteriorate. So I'm, yeah, I teaching people about that uh, personal preservation all the time. So yeah, we're heroes. All, <laughs> <of us. laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all I got, right? Is anyone else, anything else you're into? Um, the only other thing I was going to talk about just a little bit, not specific books or anything, but just Libby in general, because I only discovered that when I started working here. And, you know, I guess I think it overtook Overdrive at this point, or yes. they're kind yes. of like the same. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I've just been, because I drive to Queens all the time, oh, yeah. um, I'm just tearing through audiobooks this mm-hmm. summer. And I'm so grateful that the library, like you could just rent them. I've rent like five audiobooks at a time. They're like 11 plus hours mm-hmm. each. And I'm like, I would never before I had this kind of commute, like have, you know, I couldn't imagine myself sitting down for 11 hours and being like, let me just listen to this whole <laughs> book. You know, I like my attention's back. I'd be running around the whole, the whole house. But um, I, I can finish like a book or two in the span of a week and like it's it's just like opening up so many new genres for me and like different just different topics that I've never explored before and it's it's just been really exciting I feel like I'm I'm never alone even though I'm alone 95% of my day like in the car you know whatever it is but um it's yeah I've been having a really fun time with that this summer I think I've since June I think I've gotten through like 15 or 16 audiobooks at this wow. point and it's yeah. okay. it's just great and I there are uh, a few of the good ones that I that I finished recently um and it's not as new anymore but Yellow Face by RF Kuang was really good um we've got uh Deep as the Sky Red as the Sea I believe it's called I don't remember the author's name I'm sorry but um yeah there's just there's a lot of good I'll go on our website actually for a little plug and i'll look at the staff recommendations and do those or goodreads um novelist because i love novelists because you can you can put like a vibe i think they actually have a search search bar sorry for like what vibe are you looking for and like if you can articulate that in a few words yeah it'll pull up books i, I just thought that was the coolest thing um but yeah Livy is fantastic and it's great because you could just rent it from the library you don't have mm-hmm. to you know pay for audiobooks or e- ebooks on Kindle or whatever it is. So I love that. Yeah, it's life changing. It really is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Huge I'm like, proponent I, of Libby. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I was feeling like I was missing so much reading time because, like, I'm, yes. when I sit down to read, it's usually for school because I just have so much material to do for that. And it's like, I don't, a lot of the time, like, my eyes are, I feel like they're bugging out of my head by the time I'm ready to go to sleep. So I'm like, I can just listen to my book tonight. <laughs> like, that's perfect. I can, like, have my fiction fix again. So it's great. <laughs> Right, that's a plug for Libby. Yeah. We should do a whole episode on Libby. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write down that note. All right, we'll have you on for the Libby episode. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right, well, that's all we've got for this episode. Thank you both so much for joining me, and I hope you'll you'll come yeah, back again you. soon. Thank you so all right. much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.